Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. This is Shu Wang. Welcome back to the New Books Network um, podcast. Today, I feel very happy to invite you, Dr. Um, James Kung Jin Lee to discuss his newest book, Pedagogy of Oneness. So the first thing I want to do is to invite Dr. Lee to introduce himself to us. Thank you, Shu. Um, my name is Jim Lee. Uh, my pronouns are he, him, and I am a professor of Asian American Studies and English at the University of California, Irvine, where I'm also the director of the Center for Medical Humanities. And as she mentions, I'm the author of um, the book, Pedagogies of Woundedness, Illness, Memoir, and the Ends of the Modern Minority. I'm very happy to be here. Thank you so much, Dr. Lee. Um, that's a question where I want to invite you to introduce, to talk about the reason why you are interested in the two fields, Asian American studies and the disability studies. Sure. Um, I actually write about the origin story of my interest in the intersections of Asian American disability studies in the book and kind of late in the introduction. Um, But in the summer of 2009, um, in between leaving UC Santa Barbara, which was my previous institution, and joining UCI, I did 400 hours of what's called clinical pastoral education or a form of hospital chaplaincy internship. Um, at a at a hospital in downtown Los Angeles, um, I was assigned to the oncology and surgery floor, and there for forty hours a week for ten weeks, I sat with patients and families and um, hospital staff, listening to stories of illness and suffering and all manner of storytelling, kind of that emerged from. Uh, acute and chronic illness, disability, and the like. And, um, you know, I was trained as a literary critic. I have a PhD in English. I've been working for, at that point, more than a decade, or almost a decade. And none of that training in reading carefully and closely prepared me for what I encountered in the hospital. And so I came away from that experience uh, really 
wanting to learn more about how illness and disability changes the way we kind of think about storytelling, changes the way, of course, we think about embodiment and the like. Um, my director, the director of the program that I was part of turned me on to Arthur Frank's work. And so that reading his work really helped me kind of, kind of solidify kind of how this could this initially emotional response to encountering illness and disability then led to a kind of more sustained scholarly interest. And then around that time, um, a number of my colleagues in Asian American studies started falling sick. And I started listening to their stories. Um, and in fact, one of the people that I engaged with was uh, Jennifer Ho, who was then at UNC Chapel Hill, now at the University of Colorado Boulder, um, she was diagnosed with breast cancer and she and I spent, you know, began a months long conversation about what her, that experience meant for her. And that resulted in a special issue of Amerasia Journal, which she and I co-guest edited on um, what we called the state of illness and disability in Asian American. So I would say that it came from a very personal place, uh, both in terms of my chaplaincy experience and then talking to colleagues and friends in the field. Um, and that just kind of got me interested in more broadly, the, um, um, kind of the fields of disability studies and medical humanities. And it just, that was kind of really how I became interested. In, and that's what ultimately led to the book. Okay, thank you so much, Dr. Lee. Um, let's go to your book. So my first question is to invite you to talk about the first chapter of the book, and especially how about the rise of South Asian physicians writing and their implications. So, uh, I mean, I think uh, the, 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 in order to be, before we get to the to the narratives written by South Asian American physicians, we kind of have to think about this kind of demographic of South Asian American physicians in the late 20th and early 21st centuries. It's important to bear in mind that, um, you know, part of the passage of the Hart Seller Immigration Act of 1965 had a special provision to prioritize what Congress then called foreign medical graduates. Um, if you recall, 1965 is also the passage of um, President Johnson's uh, major Great Society programs, which included um, the, the 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 creation of Medicare and Medicaid, which profoundly expanded. Uh, healthcare coverage uh, to elderly and poorer Americans. And so you had in the mid to late 60s just this explosive boom in healthcare demand. Um, and the medical system at that point could did, just, just simply didn't have the personnel to, uh, to, to meet that demand. And so Congress very um, kind of put into the immigration bill a provision to invite both uh, foreign physicians as well as foreign nurses to come to help fill that need. And so at the very same time in Asia, particularly South Asia, you have a pretty substantial um, uh, emergence of South Asians graduating from medical school um, from India and Pakistan um, who are then brought to the, who come to the United States uh, through the special uh, FMG visas. Um, we have see a corollary amongst Filipinx and South Korean nurses around the same time. And in fact, my mom came on one of those visas. She immigrated to the U.S. in uh, 1971 with one of those visas. Um, um, so I, I think it's important to sort of note that kind of sociological demographic story as a way of understanding why it is that 
U.S. hospitals become so populated by South Asian American physicians, um, um, and 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 why the face of U.S. medicine turns demonstrably brown into the late twentieth and early twenty first centuries. Um, so that's kind of the first thing to kind of bear in mind. The other thing that is important to bear in mind as to why South Asian Americans become uh, take on the mantle of writing. Um, narrative um, is that many of these South Asian American, mostly immigrants, although not exclusively so, um, are, are, you know, because India, for example, is a post-colonial country, you have physicians who are also trained in a kind of British system uh, in which um, the kind of the arts are, if not fully valorized, at least kind of acknowledged. And so many of our um, South Asian writers uh, Abraham Verghese, uh, Atul Gawande, um, uh, it's kind of the, perhaps the two most popular um, medical authorities. Um, they are all in some ways trained in this kind of post-colonial context. Um, it's not lost on me that Atul Gawande is, was a Rhodes Scholar, right, and studied in England. So you have that kind of post-colonial training and that kind of um, um, this idea of a kind of South Asian Anglophone sensibility uh, that that um, kind of they bring with it. Um, so I think those are some of the major reasons why we see that kind of rise. Um, I say I talk about in the book how these authors um, kind of kind of embody the bringing together of science and the arts that was kind of disaggregated uh, in the late twentieth century, where you have uh, folks um, this idea of kind of the two cultures of of there being men of science and men of art, but they are kind of in these t- different categories. And what these South Asian American writers do is they bring the science and the arts back through narrative form and um, become in some ways these figures of healing um, um, that uh, many American readers and patients did not experience in real life. And so I, th- I think they become a kind of figure, almost like a guru figure for uh, American readers. Okay, thank you so much for your answer again. So my next question will be invited you to talk about how the emergence of Asian American medical narrative may be understood in two distinctive but related ways, which regards a I mean, model minority and a medical authority respectively. So, I mean, one of the things that kind of that undergird the book project is this idea that the model minority, and it's important to say this kind of very clearly, um, and I'm part of a, a small group of scholars who say this emphatically, that the model minority is not a myth. The model minority rather is a racial form, a form of racial subjectivity that many um, Asian Americans um, not only live into, but actually desire to. Oops, hold on. Sorry about that. My my uh, um, that many Asian Americans not only live into but desire to live into, um, and this idea of um, high educational achievement, high economic and social mobility, um, are kind of values that are instilled in into, say, for example, second generation Asian Americans. There is a what I argue a health corollary to the model minority, which is that the model minority presumes forms of able-bodiedness and able-mindedness that enable the high mobility of Asian American model minoritization. 
So that's kind of the first thing to kind of bear in mind. And if you think about it in those terms, then the physician becomes a kind of model minority figure par excellence, right? Because when we think of those tasks with the, the work of uh, curing and healing people, um, we tend to imagine that our physicians are incredibly able-bodied and able-minded. And in fact, many of the medical narratives that you read talk about the kind of physical endurance that physicians have to undergo in order to prove themselves worthy of taking on the mantle of becoming doctors, right? And so the idea, idea that residents are expected to you know, go without sleep for 36 hours to be on call or, you know, surgeons being on their feet for six to nine hour surgeries, right? There's a kind of narrative of physical endurance and able-bodiedness that, that kind of undergirds the physician memoir. And if you read our Asian American versions, um, it's, it's striking how um, almost organic the the journey to medicine is for many of our Asian American authors. You know, I teach medical humanities at UCI and most of my students in those classes are pre-med and the arduous, almost miserable experience that they, 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 that they have, they endure in the journey to get to medical school is striking. Um, these students, for these students, the desire to go to medical school is, the, the, the struggle to go to medical school is as hard as the desire to go. And so there's something that's really striking about the effortlessness that our Asian American authors speak of going to med school. It is in narrative form, no big deal. So that's the, the first thing that I would say. The other, in terms of the medical authority, um, you know, I think that many of our authors um, narrate the journey through medical school and into kind of um, into medicine, you know, and the kind of formation of medicine um, as one of gaining a kind of medical um, authority, medical excellence, uh, kind of re reaching that kind of um, the apex, right? Um, uh, and, and kind of Becoming medicine, and this is one something that many physician authors talk about, this idea of there being a kind of um, what are called the informal curriculum, kind of medicine as its own kind of culture um, that Asian Americans um, kind of uh, inhabit um, with a kind of ease, with a kind of authority. Uh, what's striking that I write about in, in, in this second chapter is when these Asian Americans kind of reach their kind of clinical apex, the height of their profession, they look around them and they begin to see uh, what's broken in medicine. Um, just as many Asian Americans, not all, but many Asian Americans in their journey to becoming model minorities kind of reach the, the mountaintop and look around and, and realize that, it, that that journey is actually laden with a lot of brokenness and a lot of, of, of um, systemic problems. And so that's kind of really what the, 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 the second chapter tries to get at is as these Asian Americans journey um, through in their medical um, story, uh, they come to a realization that, that both the identity, their identities as model minorities and their identities as medical authorities hit a kind of event horizon. 
And then the question is, what is on the other side of that event horizon? Okay, thank you so much for answer again, especially about interaction or intercession after two perspective model minority and the medical authority. So my third question is to invite you to talk about the rise of Asian American illness blogs and the memoirs and their styles. You know, it, you know, had I written this book much earlier than as as I had intended to, this the uh, the third chapter would have been me really talking about the lack of Asian American illness memoirs, uh, because when I started to think about writing this book, uh, there weren't weren't any. Um, I mean, you would you would have basically in 2011 when I first first started to really kind of think about uh, Asian American illness, there were two essentially self-published books uh, written by Asian Americans about their illness experiences, Fred Ho and Brandy um, uh, Laurel. Um, and uh, Brandy's was self-published because when she shopped her manuscript to publishing houses, uh, editors told her that there was no interest in cancer memoirs. Now, that is absolutely not true. I mean, cancer memoirs are remain a very, very popular genre. Um, but what the editors were essentially telling her was, what, we're not really interested in Asian American cancer memoirs. And so the, the third chapter was really going to be about kind of the lack of illness writing and how that kind of fed into a certain kind of model minority understanding of, of Asian American embodiment. But then as the decade unfolded, something broke. And we started seeing towards the end of the decade, a flood of Asian American memoirs about illness. And I talk about those memoirs in the third chapter. Um, and what we find is that Asian Americans had been writing about their illnesses um, in, 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 you know, in during this decade, um, mostly in blog form. Uh, this was the kind of heyday of the genre or the form of the blog where people kind of began to express themselves through this kind of digital writing. And um, it was through these blogs that Asian Americans started to form a sense of community. Um, what's striking is how, I mean, as it is for any diagnosis of a serious chronic or terminal illness, the shock of that disruption that illness brings, right? This, I, this sense of what Arthur Frank calls narrative wreckage that illness brings to a person formerly able, able-bodied. You see this very much so in these blog entries of this sudden turn to this di- of a diagnosis, or in the case of, for example, Christine hyung her experiencing a stroke at the age of 33, um, the transformative, disruptive nature of illness, um, and the, the need on the part of these Asian Americans to try to make sense of it through this form of writing that is in some ways indefinite, right? Blogs can go on and on and on. And some of them do take on this kind of a life and afterlife. And many of these authors, their blogs are still up on, on the internet. Um, you know, what's striking is that many of these authors in the latter half of the, of the decade, Christine Lee, uh, Juliet Williams, who also had a blog about her colon cancer, um, they found not only a community of Asian American readers, but they also found uh, uh, not just a white readership, but a white readership of stakeholders in trade publishing. And so 
editors of major presses began to read these stories. And that's when these Asian Americans started getting book contracts. Um, and, and again, we have a slew of them at the end of the decade. Um, and so what's striking to me about these illness memoirs is how um, they, in some ways, follow many of the kind of tropes and scripts of general, generally kind of illness memoirs written by, for example, white people, um, but kind of shot through, through many of these narratives is the kind of model minority expectation. And so what do you do with model minority identities, which includes able-bodiedness when your own body is failing you? And so those are some of the conundra that I think that I try to explore in chapter, uh, in chapter three. Um, in terms of how Asian Americans kind of wrestle with that through their development of a kind of an, a, a, a narrative ill voice, as it were. Thank you so much for your answer to my question. So my next question will be about, I want to invite you to talk about representation of illness in Asian American physicians' scholarly writing. Okay, and so in terms of that, um, do you mean like, are you talking specifically about chapter four? Okay, um, so the chapter four is titled Illness as Method, and it looks at um, uh, scholarly monographs. So these are um, academics who are themselves Asian American um, in the humanities and in the social sciences. Um, I, I look primarily at three Asian American academic writers um, and their respective experiences of illness and disability. There are two uh, scholars who uh, experienced um, breast cancer, and then a third who experiences a kind of form of environmental toxicity, a kind of reaction to environmental toxicities. And I'm, I was interested in the ways that illness transforms the scholarly um, endeavor, right? Many of us trained in the humanities and in the social sciences are trained to um, approach our scholarly objects with dispassion, with a kind of uh, emotional, if not distance, a kind of bracketed uh, emotional relationship to our scholarly objects, uh, all in the name of developing a kind of scholarly rigor uh, that allows us to see and critique our objects. Um, what I found in my study of these three authors is that illness kind of transforms, changes, and disrupts that, that, ex that scholarly expectation, that the object of study, when filtered through the experience of, you know, in the cases of these three uh, authors, life-threatening illness um, really kind of has us reimagine um, what scholarship is for um, and why engage in scholarship. So even as, for example, Lachlan Jane uh, in their study of the cancer industry is deeply critical of the, what you might call the cancer industrial complex, um, also treats those who have experienced cancer, those who've died from cancer with an extraordinary amount of care. Um, and that's one of the things that I found that kind of runs through these scholarly works that alongside criticism, um, the work of care as 
a scholarly method becomes um, paramount, um, a, a really kind of crucial uh, foundational uh, kind of value uh, that we often don't see in in academic scholarship, and so that to me is is a, is a profound, uh, at least for at least for me, was a profound insight in kind of thinking through what happens when the scholarly academic endeavor confronts um, the vicissitudes of illness and disability. Uh, it doesn't always happen, but the I found it striking that these three Asian Americans sort of took up care as a kind of critical mantle that is kind of on par with um, and actually kind of a precondition to what we might consider intellectual rigor. Okay, thank you so much for your answer from to, for my last question. So I will appreciate you talk about your news book to, to us again. So uh, I, now I want to talk to my audience. So I want to say, um, as a medical historian, as a disability historian, I personally very appreciate reading Dr. Lee's newest book, Pedagogies of Oneness. So I want to recommend anybody with interest in Asian American history, with interest in medical humanity and either um, disability study, you may consider buying a copy of Dr. Lee's newest book, Pedagogies of Wounded, Woundedness. Thank you so much for your listening to our podcast today. Thank you. Thank you.